Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12 this morning. You should have noted, I hope, through our worship thus far, just the, the focus that we have coming out of Matthew 11 and into Matthew 12, thinking about the rest of God. The invitation of, of Jesus in Matthew 11 to come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so we come to him, our living water, right? We come to him to worship. We come to him to find rest. We come to him seeking strength and peace and comfort. And it's in Christ that our faith finds a resting place. The hymn that the choir just led us in is the old hymn by Philip Dodgers that we set to music this week, and it's a prayer. It's a prayer to the Lord of the Sabbath, who we will look at today as Jesus proclaiming that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. We, we come today, and we come in the greater context, and we will look at this, but we, the greater context of what Hebrew, Hebrews 4 gives us, that Christ is our Sabbath rest, that in him we rest, we come to him, we have the peace of Christ that dwells within us, and we have rested from our works. In light of that overall context, we come to an important scene in the life and ministry of Christ in Matthew 12. And just by way of refresher, in case you weren't with us last week, I just remind you that in 11, 28 to 30, you have that beautiful invitation from the Lord, right? The invitation where he says, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We talked about how that invitation was to come from the legalism and the burdens of the, the Pharisees and the yoke of legalism of law that they had placed upon the people. And Jesus, in contrast, says, take my yoke, learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I had some people, uh, a couple of people last week say, you didn't explain to us what a yoke is. Not everybody here may know what a yoke is. And, and I think most of us probably would. But if, you, if you're not familiar with that terminology, a yoke was used in a couple ways in these times. One, it was used to, to fasten two animals together that they might pull together a heavy load or, or a, a plow or something. They were yoked together. And we have a teaching in Scripture about not being unequally yoked based on this metaphor and what that looks like. The other way that a yoke was used was to put across the shoulders to help a man bear a heavy burden, to help him carry something of great weight. And that's the metaphor you see used here, is that that is, is put across the shoulders that you bear the yoke and carry a great weight. Well, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Cast away the yoke of the Pharisees and take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And so right out of that, we have Matthew 12, where we have Matthew giving us an example of how Jesus' yoke is easy, specifically regarding the Sabbath regulations that the Pharisees set forth and put down. And what we have to understand as we look at this passage today in the context of Matthew and the life and ministry of Christ, we have to understand what we said earlier, that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Okay, He is the fulfillment of the law. Specifically, he is the fulfillment of the fourth commandment. And he has made it that all who believe in him enter into the rest of God. That's why, that's why Pastor Scott read the passage from Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 4.3, we read that for we who believe enter the rest of God. We have entered, not we will, but we have. We enter it when we believe. In Hebrews 4, 9 to 10, you heard, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That doesn't mean that we've rested from doing the works of God. It doesn't mean that we rest from ministry. It doesn't mean that we rest from doing anything for the Lord. We know passages such as Ephesians 2.10 talk about that we have good works set before us that God put before us from before, the time, before time began. We're called to, to do good works, to let our light shine that people might see the glory of God through our lives. 
what he's talking about is we rest from the work of striving and seeking and trying to earn God's approval of meriting salvation. That's the work that we rest from. Now, before we read the text, I want to just remind you contextually the seriousness of the Sabbath in the life of the Jew of Jesus' day. Because it's something that I think, honestly, we'll talk about this this, uh, towards the end of the sermon today. But it's something that I think we kind of have stepped away from really seeing the importance of this day in many times. And so for the Jew, they understood that the Sabbath carried a great weight of importance. You heard the, the reading of the word from Johnny earlier, Exodus 28 through 10, or the fourth commandment, the law is given to honor the Sabbath. It's the commandment that is given great explanation and that is based in the creation narrative as, as, Jesus, or as God creates everything in six days in Genesis 1. And then Genesis 2 begins by describing the rest of God, that he rested on the seventh day. In, in Exodus 30, 31, 12 to 17, I, I want you to hear this text because it helps us to understand the significance, the weight, the importance of this in the life of Jews. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. And this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. It's pretty serious. Whoever does any work on it, That soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, a couple of things there. We, we see that, that the Sabbath is to be a sign, right? A sign of the covenant relationship between God and his people. It is to display this covenant commitment between God and his people. It's to remind the people there in verse 13 that, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I have set you apart. And he says that this day is holy for you. Is set apart for you. It's consecrated for you, not you for it. He will, and Jesus will deal with that later. So the Sabbath had great weight, great implications. It was out of passages like this that the Pharisees and the, the scribes developed an extensive listing of categories of what entailed work, up to 39 different categories of what work meant. If we're not to work on the Sabbath, if it carries that much weight, if there's that great a penalty, then what does it mean to work on it? And so they devised 39 different categories of work, rules about, about how far you could walk on the Sabbath, how you pick things up, not just what you picked up or how heavy they were, but how you picked them up. There, there were even rules about carrying. You couldn't carry a coat somewhere. You could wear the coat. So if I put the coat on and wore it into the next room and then took it off, it was okay. But if I took that same coat and just carried it into the next room, then I would have been working. There's all kinds of different rules and regulations added to define what work is, how heavy something might be. The Jewish Mishnah noted that the rules about the Sabbath are as many as mountains hanging by a hair. It says the scripture is scanty and the rules are many. There there is writing, historical writings. There's apocryphal works that talk about how when Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Jerusalem, hundreds died because he attacked on the Sabbath. They laid down, they refused to fight on the Sabbath. There's also the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about how Pompey was able to come and set siege upon Jerusalem because he was able to to prepare for the siege unhindered. Why? Because he did it on the Sabbath. And so the the Jews watched him because they refused to work on the Sabbath. So Pompey prepares to make siege and comes into Jerusalem to conquer. The Sabbath was an important thing to the life of the Jew. They took it seriously. 
It wasn't, well, you do you, and you roll with whatever you want to roll with. The Sabbath carried great weight and importance to the Jew. And so here in the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, you have him saying, come to me, I will give you rest. Rest, right? The original intent of the Sabbath was modeled after what? What do we see in Exodus and then we hear again in Hebrews? That the Sabbath in reference goes back to, to show it's based upon what? The rest of God. That God rested in the creation narrative. And so the Sabbath is given to us to image that, to follow after that precedent, to rest, right? And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so the Jews hear this. Remember, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, okay? So he's writing to this Jewish audience. They hear this, and he goes immediately into chapter 12 to make a very clear point of what it looks like for Jesus' yoke to be easy and his burden to be light. You want to know what it looks like to be under an easy yoke of Christ, to find rest in Christ? Do you want to know what it looks like for his burden to be light? Let me show you. Matthew's making a very clear point. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had not known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out, and conspired against him how to destroy him. Matthew, in writing his gospel, lays out Matthew 12, and Jesus' activity, his ministry, his teaching on the Sabbath as exhibit A for what it looks like to be under the easy yoke and the light burden of Christ. When you, when you get to 12, verse 1, and, and you read at that time, I would just remind you, we've talked about this various, various points through our study of Matthew, that Matthew is not writing in a strictly chronological way. So Matthew is, is more thematic in his writing. And so at that time is, is more of a, a general statement tying it to the theme, the focus of Matthew 11, rather than a, a strict chronology. So we have at that time. Related, so in the same vein, what's going on, what Jesus has said in Matthew 11, now let me show you this, is what Matthew is saying. And we hear, we hear in verse 1, we read in verse 1, on the Sabbath, Sabbath, establishing the context of the passage. Now, the Jew, as you might, might think or might understand, as soon as they hear that, their ears would kind of perk up and go, oh, on the Sabbath, this is important. Because we know how the Sabbath is. We have all kinds of categories. We, we know the Sabbath is an important day for us. And so their, their ears perk up. 
And so we see Jesus teaching here, and we see in Matthew 12 this conflict arising with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. 12.1 is the, the first reference to the Sabbath in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is in chapter 12 that we find conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath. It's the only place in Matthew that we see this, the conflict over the Sabbath. And so we come to 12.1 and we see the problem. What's the problem? What was going on? What did the, what did the Pharisees come after Jesus about? His disciples are, are walking. They're walking along and they're, they're hungry. And they say, so they stop in the field and they pluck grain. It says they pluck heads of grain and they eat them. And so the Pharisees jump on that and say, whoa, 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 they can't do that. that that's, that's work, right? That's work. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with what the disciples did. It's not like they were, they were just going about and, and being abusive to someone's grains. They weren't stealing. This was actually something that God has set up in Leviticus 19.9. Instructions were given. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So what God established was that when you, when you harvested a field, you left the edges so that someone who was hungry, someone who was traveling, as they, they walked through, if they were in need, they come through and they're, they're around the edge of the field, they could gather grain and find food. So what they did was not Anything, there was, it was not illegal. There was nothing unlawful to what they did. So the problem was not in what they did. The problem was in when they did it, right? When did they do it? On the Sabbath. So the problem the Pharisees were coming after them was, was that you violated the Sabbath. You have worked on the Sabbath. Now look in verses 3 through 5. We have Jesus' response. How does he respond? He responds by giving them two examples of times where something happened in the, the life of the people of God and God did not condemn them or punish them for what they did on the Sabbath. The first example was, was David. This is from 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6. And what you have there is you have Ahimelech, the priest of Nob, he shows mercy to David and his men. Because David and his men come through and they need something to eat and they eat of the bread. He gives them bread of the presence, which is supposed to be only set apart for the priest. But in this moment, the, the priest gives David the bread. He has mercy on David. David and his men eat of it and there is no condemnation of that. And Jesus here teaches that Ahimelech rightly showed mercy over ceremony. He rightly showed mercy over ceremony. He, he did what was to be done on the Sabbath. This, the second example he gives it is in verse 5. In verse 5, he, he says, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, what does that mean? Well, the priests, how would they profane the Sabbath? Well, they would profane the Sabbath theoretically because they work on the Sabbath, right? They go in and they offer sacrifices. They make preparations. They lift heavy things like things that are much bigger than a fig. I, I read one rule is you weren't supposed to lift anything that was heavier than a fig. And they definitely were lifting things heavier than a fig. So in theory, that would mean that they're violating Sabbath. Well, why are they not? It's because they are doing the work of the Lord. They are in the temple, and we read of this in Numbers 28, 9 to 10, that the, the priests were instructed to work in making preparations on the Sabbath. They were told to work in the temple to make preparations for the Sabbath. And so here we, Jesus points out essentially that, that the Sabbath is not violated for this work because they're doing the work of the Lord. So in the first instance, the, the priest shows mercy to David and his men. In the second instance, the priest is doing the work of the Lord in the temple of the Lord, and it is not then a violation of the commandment to keep the Sabbath. In verses 6 through, six through 8, Jesus kind of drives home his point. He, he makes his point really clear, and it's kind of the, the central part of this passage where Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. The, the temple essentially justified the work of the priests on the Sabbath because of where it was done, what it was done for. And Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. You, you venerate the temple. You see how special the temple is for what it is. I'm greater than the temple. And then he says, 
And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' point that he drives home here is that he has authority over the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he drives home and he he brings out the point that we'll talk about, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That mercy is of more value than religious ceremony. This is a quotation of Hosea 6.6 and you see it elsewhere in the scriptures. But he, he quotes this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the reason he quotes this is because the, the Pharisees, probably like some of us, were quick to, to set religious rules and activities before genuine godliness. They were more concerned with what they did in their religion than they were about the heart of how they did it, why they did it. So they set acts of sacrifice before hearts of godliness. That, that's something we have to consider. Do we set acts, religious acts of sacrifice before lives of godliness, hearts of godliness? Are we more concerned with what we do than why we do them? Are we more concerned with carrying out our religious habits, our religious traditions, or are we more concerned about where our heart is and demonstrating godliness over religiosity? Micah 6, 6 through 8 comes to mind. You remember what the Lord said there? He, he, he essentially, in that passage, you can go read it later, but he, he says, it's not offerings and religious rituals that I'm looking for. I've told you what I require. You remember what he says? I've required that you do justice, walk humbly, right? You would do justice, walk humbly, love mercy. That's what I've required. It's the heart. It's living a godly life. You might remember That in Matthew 9, 13, Jesus quoted the same exact verse from Hosea. That I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, why did he quote it there? Do you recall? It was because the Pharisees were upset that Jesus was eating and fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors. Oh, that's not right. That's not what you should do. You should be more religious than that, Jesus. And Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Our practice of religion must never supersede our practice of godliness. We we can't put religion over godliness. Proverbs 21 verse 3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. It's problematic when practices and programs of the church take precedent over the actual church, the people of God. That's problematic. When what we do and why we do, and those are the things that we do, what we practice, our, our traditions, when those things become elevated over the very people of God that they're intended to be for, it becomes problematic. That's where the Pharisees had fallen. They were so concerned about the rules that they were neglecting mercy. It's what we read is along the same lines. James talks about genuine religion. Genuine religion is not seen in the sacrifices you make and the traditions you uphold. What does James say? James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this, religion, this person's religion is worthless. So we might come in and we might attend worship. We may sing out. We may raise our hands. We may offer up our amens. We may go on mission trips. We may do all these wonderful things. We may have all the t-shirts. We may look the part. But if we speak ungodly words and we can't bridle our tongue and speak words that Scripture instructs to build up and to edify and provide grace, right? Then James says you are deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. In James 1.27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. It is is problematic, again, when our religious deeds take precedent over caring for the needs of our brothers and sisters. And we're so caught up in doing the things of religion that we don't show love and mercy, justice and grace towards those in need. We have to remember the core, the heart of who we are in what we do. We go on through Matthew 12 and verse 9 to 10 and we see 
Jesus goes on from there and he goes into a synagogue. And when he walks in the synagogue, they ask him immediately, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's because there's a man there with a, a withered hand. He's handicapped, and they, they know Jesus' precedent. They know that he had gone around all through Matthew. We've seen him doing what? We see him going about healing and caring for people's needs, meeting their physical needs, right? And so they know that, and so they see this man, and they see a prime opportunity. What does it say? Why do they ask him this question? Because they want to learn? Because they want to grow in godliness? Why do they ask him? And they ask him so they might accuse him, it says. They say, is it, is it lawful then to heal on the Sabbath? Like, should we do that? Should you do that? Because they knew that the general practice, you know what the general practice was? The general practice was if it wasn't uh, kind of a level one triage, like a really important, dangerous thing, then you just wait till the next day. So is it lawful then to do that, Jesus? Their heart intent is what? accusation their heart intent is to trap jesus they they do not have a good and a righteous intent in this in verse 11 to 12 then jesus follows that up with a example what is the example he gives if if you have a sheep and that sheep falls in a ditch it's stranded it's in need something's going on it's going to die you just go well man tough break (laughs) if it had been any of the other six days would have helped you sorry no, he says, no, in that event, you see that, you come and you help him, right? Well, he uses the, the same exact similar illustration in, in Luke 14, 1 to 6 with an ox. He, he's using animals to say, listen, on the Sabbath, if something happens to one of your livestock, you go and you help it. All right, you get your ox out of the ditch. You help that sheep. All the more for a person. If, if we would do that for an animal, Surely to goodness we would do that for an image bearer of God, right? So Jesus is looking and he's saying, listen, you need to understand your place. You're of greater value than animals. So you're saying, hey, it's okay to go help an animal, but then you're going to come at me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Really? No way. You're crazy. His argument here is one of, of lesser to greater. If it's okay to help a sheep, if it's okay to help an ox, then surely to goodness it's okay to help a man. We see Jesus doing this often, reminding us of our value as being greater than that of anything else in the created order. Do you remember in Matthew 6 when he tells us not to be anxious, not to be fearful? Do you remember why we shouldn't be anxious, why we shouldn't worry about the the days ahead? Because God cares for the birds of the air. And he says, you are of more value than them. Right? Matthew 6.26. In Matthew 10, verse 31, he, t- he calls us, do not be fearful. Do not be afraid. Well, why? Why should we not be fearful? Because he reminds them, he says, listen, I want you to remember how God cares for the sparrow. You remember that? You remember how God cares for the sparrow? Now, you don't be afraid. Why? Because he says, you are of more value than the sparrows. Now, just kind of a aside, we won't chase this rabbit very far down the trail. I think it's worth pointing out this morning. When you think about evolutionary theory being carried out to its logical end, you know where you end up? That a sparrow and a man are of equal value. That's where the philosophy of man leads you. That we're of same value. We're equally important. So we should care just as much for a sparrow as we do a baby. That's wrong. I'm not advocating that we go out and just kill birds for the fun of it. We are to exercise good and godly dominion over creation. But we must never forget that God made man in his own image And man has intrinsic value because of that. And man's value is greater than any other part of God's creation, right? So we have to remember that. That's the truth of God. That's how we're created. And so Jesus is using this to drive home a point, right? That if God cares for all of these things, then then man is of a greater value. Greater value. 
And so, yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because I am caring for one of God's supreme image bearers. And I will do good to his image bearers. So it is lawful, he says. Now, in verse 12 to 13, his conclusion there that it is lawful, this is completely what we see of Jesus throughout this gospel, Matthew and the others. In case they doubt that Jesus has the authority to be saying what he's saying, in case they would question his divine power, his authority, he says, oh, by the way, will you stretch out your hand? And he heals the man. Before their eyes, he heals the man, right? Stretch out your hand. The man stretched out, and it was restored healthy like the other one. It didn't just start becoming healthy. It didn't get, well, it was a little better than it was. It had a little more emotion. No, it was healthy just like his other hand. And Jesus does this to display in front of them, in front of their eyes, his divine power, his authority. Remember, we talked about that, that his works of healing and his miracles were to attest to the authority of what he said and his teachings. And he does that right here. But what do we see in verse 14? A big but. And it's not one that we like. So often in Scripture, but is followed by the mercy of God. Here, it's followed by the criticism and scheming and wickedness of man. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him. They refused to see the Son of God standing before them. They were so caught up in their religion and their legalism that they refused to see the very Son of God standing before them. They went out to do what? To destroy him, the Son of God. Now, here's what you need to note right here. At this moment in Scripture, the shadow of the cross appears on the horizon. It is this moment in Matthew, the rest of the gospel. What we're going to see as we walk through this, we're going to see the Pharisees seeking to destroy Christ, scheming against Christ. And the longer he lives, the further he goes. Every step he takes is a step closer to Calvary. Every day he lives, the the shadow of the cross raises and gets larger and larger and larger and larger. And praise be to our God that he has the resolve, the faithfulness, and the obedience of the Father to walk straight to it. Here is a turning point in the book of Matthew. Now, two questions for this text. Two questions. One, what do we learn about Jesus here? What do we learn about Christ? In in this interaction, what do we learn? Well, the first thing we learn of significance is in verse 6, that he is greater than the temple. He's greater than the temple. This statement where he says that something greater in verse 6 is repeated two more times in verses 41 and 42 of chapter 12. We'll come there in a few weeks. But it's repeated, and what he's doing in chapter 12 is he is establishing his authority. He rules over all. He's sovereign over all. So those things that you would elevate and say, hey, this is of great importance. Jesus says, I am greater. Remember, I am the true and better. We talked about that over our our Advent season. We sang of it today that Christ is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Isaac. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David. He is the true and better temple. He is greater than the temple. Remember Matthew 5, 17 to 48 in the Sermon on the Mount, he does not come to abolish the law, he says, but he comes to fulfill the law, to give the definitive interpretation and fulfillment of it. And he says, I am the greater temple. I have come to give you the definitive interpretation of what the Sabbath is and why we take of it. So the question that I ask at that point is, how is Jesus greater than the temple? That was one of the first things in in my preparation this week. I read through that and went, how is Jesus greater than the temple? In what ways is Jesus greater than the temple? Well, what was the temple? The temple primarily was the, the place of God's presence. It was where the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Lord dwelt. 
And when the people saw the temple, when they drew near to the temple, they were drawing near to the presence of God. Well, Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. Well, how can he be greater than the temple? Well, we have to start with John 1.14, where we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He's greater than the temple because his presence is among us in Christ. Remember at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew 1.23, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. In Christ, we had the very presence of God among us. In Hebrews 1.3, Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We beheld him. We saw him, the presence of God among us. In Colossians 1.19, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of divinity. Please dwell in Christ. And Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. Because as I walk among you, the presence of God is among you. The word made flesh, God incarnate, God in the flesh is here among you. He's greater than the temple. But it's not only a place of God's presence. What else is the temple for? What did the priests do in the temple? They offered sacrifices. Yeah. They came in and they offered Atonement, sacrifices that, that man's sin might be atoned for, that man's sin might be paid for, that he would be reconciled to God. Well, what do we read of Christ? When John sees him coming, what does John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. He looks and he sees the Lamb of God, the great sacrificial Lamb, and he is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Or we read in Hebrews 9, 12, that Jesus was the one who entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is greater than the temple or anything that goes on in the temple because Jesus is the Lamb of God. The life Christ is the very presence of God. And the work of Christ is the final sacrifice to atone for the sins of man and bring him back in relationship with God. You know why this is important? We don't travel to a temple to get right with God. You don't draw into here every week for this special place that puts you in right standing with God. This is a room. We gather and worship. I, I, I think this is a special room because we gather here corporately every week. There, there's a certain sense in here just because this is the sanctuary where we come and we worship the Lord together. But we don't come into this place because this is where the presence of God dwells alone. And we don't come into this place to lay sacrifices across an altar. We come in this place because Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he rose again. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, who laid down his life upon the altar to secure what Hebrews said was an eternal redemption. And so we draw near to him, we come to him and we find rest in him and we cease from doing all the works of trying to earn and merit God's favor. And we rest in him, in his blood, in the gospel. You need to know if you're an unbeliever, salvation is not found in being religious. Salvation is found in trusting Jesus Christ alone as Lord. Repenting of your sins and trusting Him. The second thing we see, he said that He is greater than a temple. Then in verse 8, he says He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And you remember the weight and the importance of the Sabbath, right? And he says, I'm the Lord of that. He's claiming authority over the Sabbath, which is a claim. If he says, I have authority over that, who gave the Sabbath in the first place? It's not a trick question. God. Exodus 20, verse 8 to 10. God gives the Sabbath. 
And here, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And he refers to himself again as what? The Son of Man. You remember we talked about that several months ago, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where we read of one coming who is as a Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations, peoples, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I rule over all the regulations of men. It is I who determine what the Sabbath looks like, the purpose of the Sabbath. I determine what constitutes work. It's not you and your interpretation. It is mine. Again, it goes back to Matthew 5, 17 to 48. He does not come, and, and Jesus doesn't come here and just abolish the Sabbath. He don't, you don't read that anywhere in, in Matthew 12, 1 to 14. You don't see him saying, you know what? The Sabbath is awful. We should never have done that. Boy, that was a mistake. He doesn't say that. But we understand from his teaching in Matthew 5, 17 to 48 that he comes and he is the fulfillment of the law. He gives the definitive interpretation of what it means. It's not the Pharisees' interpretation. The Sabbath is intended for rest and worship. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath because he's the Lord of Lords. You remember Revelation 19? The scene of Christ's coming in victory as Lord of lords and King of kings inscribed upon his thigh and upon his robe. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Here's a second question I believe we need to ask. Is what role, if any, does the Sabbath play in my life as a Christian? What, what is this? We come to this text and we see all that Jesus talked about. We see what he did. We see, we see his interactions. But we understand also Hebrews 4, right? We would understand that in the, the overall context and narrative of Scripture that Christ is our Sabbath rest, that we're not called to just rigidly, legalistically keep the Sabbath to merit God's favor, right? So what does it mean then? What significance is it for us? I mean, if we're really honest, the idea of the sacredness of a day of worship and rest is been all but lost in our nation for sure. And, and quite honestly, among many Christians, it's just been kind of cast aside and think, thought little of. The reality is that we've moved from Sabbath to Lord's Day, right? Christians move from the strict holding of the Sabbath with the death and resurrection of Christ and celebrating Christ, worshiping Christ on the Lord's Day after His resurrection, so we understand that in coming to Christ, we have our rest in Him. But what is it? I, I still believe there's something about this. This is something that God established in the creation. And all throughout Scripture, in, in Genesis, in Exodus, in Hebrews, in the Psalms, is tied back to the fact that God rested. On the seventh day, God rested. So what's the significance for us? I... I I do believe that the Lord's Day should still be held in a different regard, a, a high regard. While it's, it's different in some ways, in the legalism of Jewish keeping of the Sabbath, the fundamental purpose of the Lord's Day, of the Sabbath, should undergird the Lord's Day, I believe. I really do. Many, many of us in here can remember days where, or a time where on Sunday most of the stores were closed, right? Or hours were changed at minimum. You couldn't do certain things on a Sunday. There was just something different. Ball games were never played on a Sunday. You never had to worry about going to practice or making a ball game. You've probably heard stories of Eric Liddell refusing to compete in the Olympics. Why? Because it was on Sunday. Or you hear of the Wright brothers who refused to fly their plane on Sunday when the weather was better and they chose Monday. Why? Because they weren't going to do it on the Lord's Day. But those tales almost just seem legendary. It's like, oh, wow, that's neat. But that's not for us. But they, there was this certain kind of reverence and a certain weight about the Lord's Day. that had a, a rich significance 
in their lives. The Sabbath we talked about last week. We won't go over. You can go back and look at your notes. But we talked about the, the idea of Sabbath rest having a rich significance in the biblical narrative. We read it. We've commented on it in Hebrews 4 today. So we understand that it's throughout the whole narrative of Scripture that we see the importance of rest. So I think there's three implications I would give you today as we close. Three implications. We think about the Sabbath. Here's the first one. We need to understand that God created man with a need for a rhythm of work and rest. God created us with a, a need for that rhythm of work and rest. If you just take one without the other, you fall into a sinful life on either side of the ditch, either the idolatry of work or the sin of laziness. Both are condemned in Scripture. So the idea that we would practice laying aside a day to rest and to be near unto the Lord is something that's been practiced throughout Christian history. The Sabbath was kept until Christ died, and then Christians celebrated the Lord's Day as holy and set aside. The, the parallel passage when we come to this in Mark, the same event that Mark describes, Mark records something different or something else in addition. He records Jesus saying in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. God gave us the Sabbath for a reason. He gave us a day and a rhythm of rest for a reason. Why? Because we are finite. We are needy. We are weak. We wear out. We need rest. We are dependent upon God. God is not dependent on us, but we are dependent upon Him. And that need for rest reminds us that we depend upon our Maker. We need to acknowledge and remember that God created that rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. The second implication is I think we need to understand and acknowledge that the Lord's Day is a sign to the world that we are God's people. It just is. It's a, a sign to the world. Remember, we read from Exodus 31, 12 to 17, where God said, I established the Sabbath as a sign to of the covenant between me and you through all generations. It, it should signify, it should send a message to those around us that we drive out of our neighborhoods on Sunday morning instead of sleeping in to gather with God's people because we're God's people, because we worship Him. We get up, we come, and we exalt Him. In, in Isaiah 58, just real briefly, I just want you to hear this. In Isaiah 58, God rebukes the people for how they practice the Sabbath. I want you to hear why he rebukes them. He says, if you turn your back, or turn your foot, sorry, turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. What does he rebuke them for? He rebukes them for practicing the Sabbath in a way that's just focused on their own pleasure, on their own delight, on seeking what they want. That, you know what, it's just whatever I want to do. It's whatever is, is kind of going about my day. This is my day. I understand that we're not bound to a legalistic keeping of the Sabbath. But I think there's something for us to learn there. Is this day all about fulfilling your desires, what you want to do? Is everything, decisions made for what you do on this day, what I do on this day, is it contingent on going my own way and what I want to do? Are all of our days spent seeking our own pleasures? Is anything different about today? Anything. The third implication and final one for us today is our Christian freedom, our Christian liberty should not lead us to disregard the Lord's day. We have freedom in Christ, indeed. Yes, Christ is our Sabbath rest. 
Yes, he has freed us from a legalistic abiding of all the rules of the Sabbath. But I would say we need to be careful not to go, okay, well, we'll just be flippant about it and we'll just do whatever we want. It's no big deal. I think we would be wise to lay aside a day of worship unto the Lord. I would tell you this as a pastoral observation. The consistent forsaking of gathering with the people of God on the Lord's Day never results in spiritual growth and kingdom advancement. I would welcome anyone to debate that. We can make all the excuses we want. I need to do this. I had to do this. But if you are more consistent in neglecting gathering to meet with God's people, it's just not going to result in spiritual growth and gospel advancement. You may get a lot done. You may hit the circuits. There's a reason that God said not to give up meeting together. J.C. Ryle wrote this. Let us not abuse the liberty which he has so clearly marked out for us and pretend that we do things on the Sabbath from necessity and mercy, which in reality... We do for our own selfish gratification. The mistakes of the Pharisee about the Sabbath were in one direction. The mistakes of the Christian are in another. The Pharisee pretended to add to the holiness of the day. The Christian is too often disposed to take away from that holiness and to keep the day in an idle, profane, and irreverent manner. That quote's been on my mind a lot this week. The Pharisees erred over here. Do I err over here? What message do we send to a watching world in the way we gather faithfully? with God's people and rest in Him and draw near in Him to Him on the Lord's day. Let's pray.